to see you. Whether you're in here in the room or whether you're online, we're thrilled that you're joining us today. We're in a series called Naked Spirituality. It's based on a book um, our friend Brian McLaren wrote several years ago. It's about a life with God in 12 simple words. And so, so far we've talked about being here. Last week we talked about thanks, but not in that guilty, shamey kind of way. Um, and today we're going to talk about oh, and oh just is symbolic of awe or worship. One of the questions people ask a lot that comes up in conversations often um, in a space like ours, a progressive Christian space, what does worship mean now? Anybody have that little bit of an issue? Like you, you come to a place on a Sunday, we're doing a thing, it feels like there's some familiarity, right? But also what, what are we doing and why are we doing it and what does it all even mean? And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about today as we talk about what does it mean to worship, specifically through the lens that so many of us have grabbed a hold of and developed. Um, it, it really is a challenge. And so much of our last 20, 30 years in America, in the Christian faith, we've spent a lot of time talking about worship. When I started out as a pastor in the late 90s, early 2000s, the big thing we were talking about then was this thing, and this was in the Southern Baptist world, um, we were talking about worship wars. And what that meant was there was this conflict in churches between people who liked the traditional organ and piano hymn type thing, and then people who wanted to add drums and electric guitar and use one of those overhead projectors um, that, that are still so technologically advanced uh, to put the words on the screen. Um, and and there's, I remember being so caught up in that at that age, being like 19, 20, and just feeling like if, if we do not have electric guitar and drums, then what are we even doing here? Um, right? As I think Jesus felt in his own time and place. Um, and it's still sort of some of that way. We'll talk about worship styles. Now it's a little more like, um, you know, I prefer a liturgical style. Did anybody grow up with litur liturgy? Uh, if you don't know what that means, you didn't. Um, so don't worry about it. Um, but right, this is where there are, these, there are these prayers, there are these rituals, sometimes there's incense, there's this stuff happening, and it's, it's, it's familiar, and it's known, and yet also it somehow is helpful in opening a doorway to experience the divine. Like, there's that, and then there are all sorts of other varieties. There's sort of a hybrid of that, there's contemporary, there's a full-on where on a Sunday morning you essentially produce a Def Leppard concert. Um, that's another style of worship, they call it Def Leppard style. Um, but, but what is that what we're talking about when we talk about what worship might mean? Um, look, I think we all end up talking about our, we all have preferences, right? We all like certain songs. We all like it to be sung in certain ways. We like when certain things happen. And sometimes we like when certain things don't. And when you get a group of people in a room like this and online where we have like all these people who are coming together, I'm going to guarantee you they're gonna be, there's going to be stuff that happens on a Sunday morning some weeks that you just don't like, that you don't get, that maybe wasn't your thing. Um, that should happen every week because we're trying to create an experience for lots of different people. So it's okay if there's like, a, hey, I don't know about that one, but I like the other. That's, that's okay. Preference is not a bad thing. You can have preference. That's okay. That's not what we're going to talk about in terms of worship today. Um, we're not, you know, we could do an open mic like, hey, which song do you like best? And we, we could do that. But I, I want to talk more conceptually because whatever worship is, it has been an impulse in human beings for a very, very long time. I mean, the more we discover about our ancient ancestors, we begin to discover that very early into their humanness, they were trying to sort out this 
sort of experience, this relationship? How, how do we have some sort of relationship with the divine? What does that look like and how do we acknowledge and honor? It seems like from very early in the beginning, there was this impulse to seek out, to engage, and even manipulate God, the divine, whatever the, that conception of the divine was for them. Um, and that shows up very early in the biblical story, right? In Genesis chapter 4, um, we find this little detail. The man, Adam, knew his wife, Eve, intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain and said, I've given life to a man with the Lord's help. She gave birth a second time to Cain's brother, Abel. Abel cared for the flocks and Cain farmed for the fertile land. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but he didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. So very early in the story, there's this sense of... Like, it doesn't say why. Why did Cain and Abel, in this narrative, why do they offer something to God? Why does Cain say, you know what I should do? I got some crops here. I should go give some of them as an offering to God. Or Abel's like, you know what? I've got some, some flocks here, and I should give some of this to God. It seems like it's a very built-in, early in the human experience. This idea that there are forces outside of us that we are dependent on. Forces that control everything. And if you, like being human now is a challenge. Can you imagine being human way back when you, you, you don't understand what's going on, but this big bright thing shows up in the sky every day and you depend on it to give just the right amount of what it gives in order for things to grow. And then it rains and you need just the right amount of rain because too much rain will drown your crops, but not enough rain will scorch them. And, and so you're dependent to survive on all of these outside forces and it seems like very early on, humans were like, we, we have to figure out how to relate to this. We have to figure out how to get it on our side. We have to figure out how to make the outside forces that control everything, that turn all the knobs. We have to make sure that they're for us. And for lots of us, that's what worship used to be. We knew what we were doing in worship, right? We were, we were checking all the right boxes so that God would be happy with us. So that when we didn't study for the exam that week, maybe God would remember we were in church. <laughs> And then miraculously change the professor's mind about your grade, right? Or that it would get you out of that speeding ticket or it would get you a positive test result that you wanted or what it would solve a relationship crisis that we go put our time in, we do some FaceTime with God, and then we go out and God gives us everything we hope for. Now, lots of us walk in here and log in here with questions and doubts with things we're curious about, things we're unsure about, things we know we can no longer hold on to, think beliefs that have stopped working for us. And then when you talk about worship in that context, it seems a little confusing. It seems like, what are we, what are we even doing? And so I wanna begin, let's talk about under, an understanding of worship that for lots of us no longer works. And maybe you've never even thought about it, but I hope maybe this will give some language to explaining why there seems to be some sort of like, if you think about worship and you're like, huh? Maybe there's a reason for that. And maybe because your faith and your understanding has shifted. And with that shift, it has taken you away from really what I grew up not being able to articulate, but looking back, thought worship actually was about. So let's begin with this. Worship for many of us was about appeasing a temperamental God. Right? Did you ever feel like you were doing, you were putting in your time with God to get God off your back that maybe you did a daily quiet time and if you, if you managed to stay awake through the whole thing that, and you did it five days in a row that God somehow, you and God were somehow okay. Like, I'll do this 
If it's sort of a bargaining, right? God, I'll do this to get you on my side. And once you're on my side, here's, a, here's my wish list. Here's, here's my list of demands now that you're looking at me and on my side. It's sort of like um, if you have kids or if you are a photographer, this will resonate with you. It's sort of like getting, you know, appeasing God's temperamental nature is like trying to get your kid to smile in a picture when they're babies, right? Because what do you do? If you ever see somebody trying to get their kid to smile in a picture, you'll, they, they look like they have completely lost it. They're making noises. They're shaking things at the baby. They're going, and the kid is blown away every time. I can't believe it. they're gone. Now they're here, right? Like, 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 smile. Give us a smile. Goo, goo, goo. And you, know, you, you just, you look, you look like you've lost it. And then the photographer's joining in, and you're trying, you're just trying to get that one shining moment of that baby, that toddler, maybe that teenager, depending on the day of the week, to get to get them to give you that one smile that you're looking for. And I think that for some of us, trying to get God on our side, trying to get God to smile at us, trying to get God to acknowledge us. And, and trying to make sure that God's anger and vengeance and wrath were taken care of so that we didn't have to deal with it. So, so part of worship was like, how do, and, and you can, I wonder, in our ancient ancestors, I definitely think this was part of it. How do we keep the gods for us and happy with us? Because we need the crops to grow and we need the herds to be successful and we want our kids to grow up. And we, we, we want all of this stuff to happen. So we have to do these things. And, we have, and we're kind of just, it's like we're guessing in the dark because like, we don't know, but, but maybe if we give God the best of what we have, then maybe God will give us the best of what God has. And you can see why that at one point, in desperate times, people would even turn to the sacrifice of children. Because if God, want, we have to show God we're serious and, and God hasn't responded then what is the very best thing we could possibly offer? And there's debates among anthropologists when that shift, what, did, was it first like crops and animals and then humans, or was it humans and then crops and animals? I, I kind of have a guess it probably started maybe with a mixture, maybe with human, but the reality is even in the scriptures, um, and I can't remember if we talked about this recently, but there's like the, the very place in the Bible, Gehenna, which is mistranslated as hell, that very word is referenced to a valley where some of the Jewish kings offered their children a sacrifice because desperate times call for desperate measures. And I think for many of us, we are leaving behind an understanding of a temperamental God. We're leaving behind a, of a God who needs to be convinced to be on our side. Look, I'll tell you something. No matter how frustrated I am with my kids, I do not have to be convinced to be on their side, right? And they may do something that annoys me, but if you say anything about it, it is on. Because <laughs> my children are perfect <laughs> when it comes to you. <laughs> When it comes to me, they can be as frustrating as the day is long, right? Uh, we don't need that convincing. So why would God? I mean, if you buy some sort of version of however we got here, that it was born out of this reality we call God, do we really need to have to work that hard to get that reality on our side? Do we really need to convince God that we're lovable? Do we really need to convince God to relent and not destroy everything? I just don't, I just don't think so. Another understanding of worship that no longer works, and we would never phrase it this way, but it's what it ends up being, and that's propping up God's ego. I, I, I remember being in college, and there was a big movement at the time where it was all about God's glory, and it was all about making sure God knew that we knew that God was glorious. And so, so much of our worship, so much of our gathering was spent going, God, you're really great. God, you're awesome. We're awful. You're great. 
God, we, we're terrible. We deserve to be tortured forever. But you, you're great. Again, I want my kids to think I'm great. I do not want them to spend all of their energy propping up my ego. There's a difference. There's a difference. I don't think that worship is really us going to God. God, if we haven't told you yet today, you're awesome. You're great. You're so much bigger than us. You're so much more powerful than us. We're these little human peons who just can't get it right. I don't think that that is what God needs from us. I don't think ultimately worship is utilized in its best form when it's just about trying to make sure God knows that we know that God is great. And then I think for many of us, worship is just trying to get God's attention, just trying to sort of, and we exist on a, on a rock that is spinning with lots of other rocks in a big expanding universe. And it's like we're over here on, you know, the third rock from the sun. Is that right? Is that, is that right? Yes. Public education works. <laughs> um, um, and we're standing here in this universe going, like, like you're on a deserted island, right? And you've, you've, you've spelled out SOS and you lit it on fire and you're doing this and you're hoping the helicopter sees you. Except you don't really know where the helicopter is because it's a big universe. We're going over here. Sometimes I think about worship as being like what happens at a concert when the band finishes but, and they go backstage pretending like the show's over. <laughs> but you know the show's not over. What's going to happen? On, what, what, where did this come from? You know, the first time it was probably super genuine. Like people were really into the show and it was over and they were like, let's just keep clapping and see what happens. And then the artist comes back out and they're like, this is great. And they do another few songs. But now it's just sort of this thing, like, we, yeah, we know the artist is going to go in, we're going to give them all sorts of, and then they're going to come back out, they're going to do a couple more songs. If you're at a Garth show, that's going to happen like six times, and it's awesome. Um, but there's this reality of, like, is that what we're trying, is, 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 is this really about getting God's attention? Is worship getting God to come back out and do a couple more songs? Like, God, do you see us? God, do you know, do you know what our needs are? Do you care? Did we do this right? Did we sing? Did we, did we put together the right combination of songs? And we've really been wrestling with where the announcements go in that. Did we hit that note today? And, and was the sermon okay, God? And did we, did we get people feeling good enough? Or did we bring them to a contemplative enough place? Did we, do all, did we get all the right things lined up so that you will now give us your attention? I just don't think that's how it works. So let me offer a few things I think of what we might call an emerging understanding of what worship could mean through this lens of progressive Christianity that we've, some of us are embracing. And I think, first of all, in this lens, worship is, is about awareness and response, but it's not about getting God's attention and getting God to respond to us. It's about getting our attention and opening us up to God and to one another. Because I think wherever you find God, I, I think if we're looking outside of here for the divine, then, then maybe, I just don't think you need a telescope to see God. I think you need to look at the person sitting next to you. And I think if we really want to have the attention, if we really want our attention to be focused on the divine, then it really is about being aware and alert and attentive to the people around us because we are all image bearers of the divine. We, we spend lots of time and energy looking for God and God's like right there, as, as close as our breath. God is around 
And I think if anything, worship is about getting us to focus our attention on what really matters. And it, it's about bringing awareness to what's really going on. It's like that moment when the fish realizes it's, it's actually in water. <laughs> like what, what if worship is getting us to go, wow, we're swimming. And, and it isn't that we do this thing at a particular time, at a particular place, because, um, you know, Third and Lindsley is definitely holy ground. <laughs> in Nashville, it is. <laughs> you can debate that out, but it's in Nashville. But is it about this spot and being at this place and doing the right things to get God's attention? Or do we come in here with all of our distractions and all the things that have been pulling us away? And hopefully what we're doing is we're, we're sort of dialing ourselves in to what's really going on around us. So that as we move into a new week of living in the world and there are going to be all sorts of things going on, maybe at least we begin the week going, yes, there's something bigger. I'm connected to it. And it, I experienced it in the people who were sitting right around me people who were chatting with me in the YouTube uh, chat room. Like, could it be that what we're really trying to do is wake ourselves up? We talked about that the very first week of this series. We talked about being here. Like, here, in the place you are. Not in the past, not lost in nostalgia, not in the future, not trying to predict and determine what will happen when nobody really knows, but being in this moment. And perhaps what we're trying to do here is to, is to get ourselves focused into the moment. And look, I get it. it. It can be hard. There are distractions everywhere all the time. If the sermon's not great, it brings up the best question that you could ever ask, and that's what's for lunch. I get it. <laughs> there are lots of things. So it's important that we do our best to make this engaging, of course. But we're not trying to make it engaging so that we can get God's attention. So that we can say, there are billions of Christians, how many churches? There are like billions of Christians and trillions of churches, probably. Um, and out of all of them, God, you picked us today. About time, you know, that sort of vibe. Like I went to church and God showed up. Well, we've been waiting for a very long time. No, 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 no. This is about opening our eyes. It, for, I think we, when we think of worship, we think of vertical relationship, but I actually think what we're engaging in is a horizontal relationship. I think what we're trying to do is open our eyes to the people around us who embody the divine just like we do. And the number of times I've experienced what I would say is an experience of the divine in my life, it is, it is almost always, almost always come through another human being. Now, this awareness can be brought up other ways. How many of you love nature? Yeah, it, like there is something about, I, I have this obsession with taking photographs of sunsets and taking photographs of trees. Um, there's just something, when I, when I see a tree that's just doing its tree thing, <laughs> and all of its treeness, and it's just doing a really good job being a tree. You know, there's some trees that aren't doing a very good job being trees, but when I see one, like, in a, like it's an open field and there's this, this majestic tree, there's something about it that just makes me aware that I'm a small part of something way, way bigger. And, and when, I, when I see this, a sunset that is, and I, yeah, you could give me the scientific reason why the sun is turning the sky orange and all of that, and maybe it has to do with dust, I don't know, but that's not as, let me just enjoy what it's doing. And, and there's something about that that almost makes you feel like wherever you are in the world, you should slip off your shoes because you're realizing, wow, this, is, this whole thing of creation is actually a beautiful, uh, transformative reality. To, like, we get to be here. You ever just wake up and think that? I get to be like, oh, a sunset. 
I got to see, I got to see that. That's a pretty incredible thing. So worship actually, in this understanding, is not confined to a particular address or a particular piece of real estate. It's about waking up. It's, a, it's about opening your eyes. It's about creating an awareness in yourself for what's already true all around you all the time. And whatever it is that brings us to that moment where we're like, oh, you have those moments? I think that's why Brian just chose the letter O for this particular experience, because there are these moments, whether it's in a room, in a space, at a concert, at a dinner, in nature, where you have these moments that just open your eyes and you begin to see in ways you haven't seen before. And words escape us. And we're only left with, And, and maybe, wow. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Second, I, I think it's ultimately, and this is connected, I think, what if we saw worship as being about cultivating wonder? I mean, for so much, I mean, there's this whole branch of Christian theology called apologetics, right? And apologetics, it's really about having to defend the faith. How do you prove that all this is true to somebody else? Well, you can't because you can't prove it, Right? It's about, it's about faith, it's about trust, but it's not about certainty and proof. There's this whole thing about apologetics and systematic theology, and I, I love theology. I love getting down into the theological trenches and wrestling with what things might mean, but, but here's the thing. That has very little transformative power. It, it doesn't inspire wonder. And, and perhaps part of the spiritual life really is about having your eyes opened and feeling the significance of being a part of all of this. I, I love um, Abraham Joshua Heschel's quote. He said this, Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. All of my kids will default to this when they're not getting something they want, particularly an iPad or something. I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. And we'll start with, it's okay to be bored. It's fine. Be bored. I'm sure lots of cool things have been created because somebody was bored. I'm bored. Here's an airplane, right? Like, that's how it works. But then there's this other sense of, of like, well, I'll tell them, you have way, like, you have way more technology and cool toys. You have all the things that if I was your age, I would never have been bored. That's how you know you're getting old. It's like, well, when I was your age, we walked uphill both ways to get our toys. And, but there's this, there's this I, I do think there's something to be said that there's a healthy kind of boredom, which means you're not always looking for an adrenaline rush. That's not what I'm talking about. But looking around at the world and going, there's just nothing to be interested in here. There's nothing inspiring. There's nothing that makes me go, oh. And what that probably means is we're not really looking very closely. Because all around us, all the time, there's invitation to wonder. To be spiritual is to be amazed. It's, it's sort of like, do you ever people watch? All the time. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of that that's just hilarious. Right, and it may make you feel better about yourself, which is okay. <laughs> but when you really look, like you just look around. Sometimes looking around at all the people around you, to me that that's a thing that inspires wonder. Like all these people who I see when I'm just 
casually sitting on a bench and they're all doing their thing. They all have hopes and dreams. They all probably want some of the same things that I want, that you want. They want to be loved and to be safe and to know that their life matters and to know that they're not alone in the universe. Like all these little individual humans, are, we're all running around and we have so much more in common than we have that separates us. And as, if I just sit and watch that long enough, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a strange and beautiful world full of all these strange and beautiful and strange <laughs> people. And I am one of them. <laughs> I just think if, if we struggle with wonder, then maybe we, need to, maybe we actually need to allow ourselves to get to the good kind of board so that we'll begin to actually look around us and realize how incredible this whole deal actually is. And I think worship also is it's about celebration or, and lamentation. It's about both. Um, we, we've sort of given off an image in the Christian church in the modern era that if you're not happy and shiny and bright, that there's something wrong. And so I think it's important to say, worship can be about celebration. It can be about celebrating the wonder and the beauty and the immensity of it all. There's this line in the book of Romans where Paul, um, and again, I'll say, this, I'll say this every time I mention Paul probably because I think we need to be reminded of it. Paul is never writing a systematic theology. Paul's always building the plane as he flies it, dealing with problems in communities. He's trying to help them push through their difficulties. And in Romans particularly, he's writing to people he doesn't know, and he's asking them to send him on a mission trip, right? Which is the awkward thing. He's like, I'm coming to visit you, and then I'm going to Spain. Would you like to support me? Here's how you do that. And so he's not really given a systematic theology, but he has this moment in Romans 11 where he's been, he's been waxing theological. And it's like there's this moment that he just gets overtaken by the celebration of everything he's been saying. It's like he can't contain it. And so he, he actually writes down sort of his, his jubilant response. And here's what he says in Romans 11. And the, the words are not as important as the vibe. Are you with me? Uh, like the words are not as important as the vibe. God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are so deep. They are as mysterious as God's judgments, and they are as hard to track as God's path. Who has known the Lord's mind? Who has been God's mentor? Who has given God a gift? Who has been paid back by God? All things are from God, through God, and for God. May the glory be to God forever. Amen. And I imagine there's a moment of like collapse there. Because if you were tracking everything, and I decided not to give you Romans 1 through 11 today, you're welcome. Um, if you're tracking, he's sort of building this argument, and then he just kind of overflows with joy and celebration, and that's an okay thing. Have you ever just had so much joy in a moment that you just had to let it out? Anybody? If you're, if you're around for this, it ruined Howard Dean's presidential bid. If you were around politics at that point, like, he literally got excited and screamed, and they're like, we cannot elect somebody like that. Because people who don't have joy are put off by it. Right? There's this, there's this, this, it's overwhelming. I cannot contain. It's sort of like those of you who are roller coaster people, when you're on the, you're just maniacs and you're on the front of the thing and it's going 900 miles an hour and you're like, yes! There's a certain, like, there's, there's a joy there, isn't it? I don't get it. I don't get it. I feel the same way over a new notebook and pen. How about that? I like to live on the wild side. I still use a notebook sometimes. But there's just this sense of there's this joy that is overflowing and overwhelming and uncontainable, and it has to be celebrated. And part of that celebration is what we talked about last week, which is thanks. Wow, thanks. This went really well. Thanks. 
And maybe it's not this big, maybe it's just the quiet joy of sitting with people you love around a table and looking at them and going, what a gift each and every one of these people are to me. And it just wells up in you. And maybe it's just a quiet, oh, oh, I'm not alone. I know these people. They know me. I love them. They love me. This is holy ground. After all, celebration can be big. Celebration can be quiet. But I do think whatever we're talking, when we talk about worship, we're talking about something that helps us channel and maybe realize there's some things that should be celebrated. There's some goodness in the world. There's some gift all around us. But we can't separate that from also there's lamentation because life doesn't always go well. And I love in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul is talking to the church that they are, you are the body of Christ. Christ has no body but yours now. You are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And so when one celebrates, we celebrate. And when one grieves and mourns and laments, we grieve, mourn, and lament alongside of them because that's what it means to be in community. And I think there's this sense for some people, like if it's not Good Friday, you can't be sad at church. When actually healthy community makes space for all the feels. And it gives space for all of the ups and joys and downs and losses and grief. I was talking to a friend recently and we were talking about like, is there anything in the the Bible that just meets us in that moment of existential terror? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like what if it's all, what what if we don't, what if we're all wrong? And what if all, all that fear and dread, is there anything in there for the worst day of your life? And I was reminded of Psalm 22. Now where we most are familiar with Psalm 22 is because the writers of the Gospels took Psalm 22 and they put it on the lips of Jesus as he was crucified. When here's probably the reality. Jesus was abandoned by all of his followers when he was arrested. That seems like a historically true fact. Why would you tell that about the people who lead your movement now, right? Like, hey, they're a bunch of cowards, but follow them. <laughs> Not a good selling point, right? So you don't, unless, there's, unless people can check the facts, you don't include that detail. And so it's possible, because if you read the Gospels, all the crucifixion accounts are different. It's possible that that maybe Jesus died on the cross alone. Maybe all of his people abandoned him. That's a possibility. But when the writers of the Gospels were reconstructing the scene and trying to tell us what it meant for them theologically and what it meant for them as a community, they go to Psalm 22, which is a psalm of suffering, and they grab a certain phrase and they put it on Jesus' lips. And here it is, Psalm 22, verse 1, right out of the gate. My God... My God, why have you left me all alone? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my anguish groans? Now think about this. If you're trying to tell a story about your Messiah, who wasn't supposed to be crucified in a lot of people's minds anyway, and now you have him being crucified, and from his lips are, God, where are you? There's something beautiful and profound and heartbreaking about that. That in the crucifixion portrait we get in the Gospels is a Jesus who very much understands the need to lament. It's a Jesus who knows what it's like to be bailed on, to be left all alone and to even have a moment of feeling like that the God we are inherently united with is nowhere to be found. Anybody ever been in one of those moments? Anybody ever had a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moment? I think good, like whatever worship actually means has to make space for that. 
that has to make space for a lot of what happens in the Psalms, which is a lot of finger shaking, a lot of fist shaking at the heavens. I, I, think, I think if we if the Psalms were being written today, some of them would have content warnings. <laughs> like TV 14, right? Like we're gonna use some grown-up words to describe our relationship with God because it's a mess. I think whatever worship becomes, it cannot run away from the realities of humanity. But it must meet them and give space for them and not try to solve them. Like there's something beautiful about Jesus just being able to say, God, where'd you go? And nobody comes along and goes, well, Jesus, actually, in God we live, move, and exist. So you're a fish, God's a water. Nobody tries to solve that. There's just a moment and Christians for 2,000 years have been sitting with Jesus. On Good Friday, Christians sit with Jesus in that moment, not trying to solve it, but just acknowledging the reality of it, that there are these moments, and these moments are all, they're terrible, they're heartbreaking, and they're holy. And so I think you have to make space in both for both, celebration and lamentation. And then finally, I, I think worship ultimately, in a progressive lens, becomes about participation. So we just read that line from Paul, right? Uh, where he's like, woo! Where Paul like lets out his best Howard Dean impression. <laughs> and then here's what happens in the very next passage. So siblings, because of God's mercy, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now here's what I don't think Paul's saying there. I don't think he's saying, hey, whatever you want and whatever you think about and whatever brings you joy, ignore all of that and just do the thing that God wants you to do. How do you know God wants you to do it? It's going to make you miserable. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this. As you become overwhelmed in the experience that we are all part of this, that we live, move, and exist in this God, here's the invitation. Don't just stand back and think about it. Actually join it and do something with it in the world. Here's the way I would describe it. I think lots of us have been taught that being a part of, being a Christian, being a person of faith, going to church, worship, all of that stuff, is sort of like going into an art gallery and looking at really famous paintings. How many of you have ever been to an art gallery or at a museum and you've seen really famous paintings? Yeah. How many of you, some of them, you were like, why is this famous? I don't understand what's happening. I guess I'm not that cool. Um, but let's say, like, like there's this, like, you, you go into, and when you go to an art museum, the expectation is that you'll do what? Look? Maybe buy a print in the gift shop on the, that you have to walk through on the way out? Is that it? Like, what, what, I mean, I love museums. I'm just, I'm just asking what you do there, because all I do is I go in and look around and go, huh, I can't do that. Mona Lisa? Nope, can't do that. The one where they threw speckled paint? I can do that. I won't make as much at it, but I can do that. But there's not this sense where you go into a museum going, you know what? Now I need to go get in the studio because I've been inspired to create. And I think that's what this should do for us. It's not a, let's go to the museum and look at the painting somebody else has made. But it's a, now I'm inspired to go back into the studio and to get out some paint or some pastels or get out some watercolor or get out some uh, some charcoal. I'm, I'm now inspired to do it. I have something, a vision, a reality that needs to be born into the world through me. There's some art I need to make. And I think if we do a good job at gathering together like this, then what it leaves us with is not, well, now we have all the answers for a whole week. 
and we, we checked off all the boxes and God got our time and we punched that heavenly time clock and we're good. No, 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 it's okay. Now it's time to send us all into the world to go make art. Because we live in a world that desperately needs good art. The creativity of justice making, of peacemaking, the creativity of loving your neighbor and learning to love yourself so you can love your neighbor even better than you are right now. The creativity of envisioning an actual solution to the problems and injustices that are all around us. The creativity of realizing that there's somebody alone and that you could go make them feel less alone. The, the creativity that says, look, I may not be able to, I'm not, I, I almost said I'm not Mozart. He didn't paint. I, I'm not Da Vinci <laughs> and I'm not Mozart, but I am a human being that has something to offer the world. And I want to go in my most creative way and share it, whatever it is that's in me that needs to be let out into the world. I'm going to share that and make the world as, as good as I possibly can tomorrow. And then the next day we'll get up and we'll get out a new canvas and we'll start painting all over again. It really feels different when you see yourself as sort of an artist, right? Even if you're not a good artist, maybe you're a good spiritual artist. Maybe you're somebody who looks at all the great paintings you've experienced and all the great sculptures and all the great art, and you realize, I have something in me that needs to be creatively unleashed for good on the world. I, I've shared this quote before, but I'll probably share it again a million times. It's from John Shelby Spong, and this was his mantra. Um, and and he, he shared this particular quote in one of his last, maybe his last public uh, talk, his last pub, public lecture. And he said this, if God is the source of life, then the only way I can appropriately worship God is by living fully. If God is the source of love, then the only way I can worship God is by loving wastefully. And if God is the ground of being, then the only way I can worship God is by having the courage to be all that I can be. Now, how, how would our lives have been different if that was the Christian understanding we had been shaped by our entire lives? Your job is not to avoid and fly under the radar and appease God the finger-shaking judge. Your role and what actual worship looked like, what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, here's the kind of thing God's looking for. It's for you and I to live fully, to love wastefully, and to inspire and help one another develop the courage to actually be everything we can be in the world. What if that's how the gospel works? What if the gospel isn't a series of instructions for how to avoid a bad afterlife situation? What if the gospel is an invitation into living and being and loving as fully and beautifully as you can right here in this world, in this life? And so for me, I, when people are like, they use the word worship in progressive Christianity, sometimes like, oh, we don't do that anymore. I hope we do. I hope we do. I hope we're not trying to flag down a God who's somewhere else busy, but maybe we'll, we'll check in. I hope we're helping one another become aware of the sacredness and the holiness and the divinity of every single moment we live. I hope we're helping one another become aware that we're not just observers, but that we are actually skilled artists who have some creativity to unleash into the world. And if we can do that, if we can begin to create in those beautiful, in what may seem small and insignificant ways, Everything can change. Are you with me?